right? Like if you're truly disrupting and building innovative products, people don't know how to ask for them because they don't know what they are. And so what you've got to do is put it in front of people and then see, do they embrace it or do they run from it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is fintech legend Mike Cagney, founder of Figure, one of the fastest growing fintech companies in the U.S., where they are on a mission to transform financial services through blockchain by bringing speed, efficiency, and savings to both consumers and institutions. Prior to Figure, Mike also co-founded SoFi and built the company into a multi-billion dollar business under his leadership as CEO. In this episode, we discuss reflections from his experience launching and building SoFi and why their original idea failed and how they quickly iterated and found a winning formula, importance of company culture, and why the founding team at Figure spent a couple of months establishing a genuine culture that could scale before doing anything else, how Figure is already using blockchain technology to disintermediate the financial market to displace trust with truth and go after a $100 billion opportunity, their strategy to quickly launch an impressive number of products in an empathetic way to the consumer, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with the always fascinating Mike Cagney from Figure. All right, Mike, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Th thanks for joining. Uh, is it all the way from California these days? Indeed. Thanks, thanks for having me. Appreciate being on. No, of course. I, I think uh, it's going to be an interesting chat because uh, you're one of the OGs of FinTech and there, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and Since you've uh, been in the industry for so long and you've built so many things, I was I was thinking of uh, kind of going back in time and, and talking a little bit about SoFi, um, how how you got it started and, and some of the early days. Um, and I, I was mentioning offline, I've been podcasting for almost three years. And one of my early guests was uh, a name that will be familiar for you, Mark Weiser from RPM Ventures. And You know, he we talked about SoFi when he was on, and one of the things he mentioned that I found interesting was how initially your goal was to use social relationships to reduce moral hazard. Uh, but then, of course, the idea evolved. So maybe maybe talk about the very early days and you know how you iterated the product. Sure. So it it, it kind of started even before SoFi. It you know back in. Uh, in, in the early 2000s, Steve Lar or Chris Larson had started a company called Prosper, and Prosper was a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform, and it, it basically allowed you to create some sort of social connection into the person you were lending money to. And you know, we I, I had been running a hedge fund at the time, and and had uh, an opportunity to go to Stanford and do a fellowship in the Graduate School of Business for a year. And so when I was down at Stanford, I, I kind of did that specifically to be able to start a company. And I started thinking a lot about the financial services space, and in particular, you know, this whole idea of one size fits all within student lending. 
And you know, my view was, well, that that's not true because you obviously have different default rates across degrees, across schools, et cetera. Um, but also there's an affinity capital aspect that you should be able to get alumni from a school to support students in that school and, and do it beyond economic rationale. So, you know, have an economic return, but a social impact benefit as well, where they can help them with their careers, help them with mentoring and so forth. And so that was the original construct. And we originally had specific school funds. So there was a, a Stanford fund, there was a Rice fund, Harvard fund. And, you know, the intent was to have that one-on-one connection. And what we realized pretty quickly was there, there were a couple of challenges around that. So it, it definitely addressed some aspects of moral hazard. It had some huge ramifications as it related to that. But it proved to be very, very difficult to scale. And, and that's, you know, that was one of the biggest challenges that we had where, where you had, un, you know, significant demand for capital, not necessarily enough capital to feed into that demand. The second thing is the students didn't really value as much as we thought that mentor relationship with the people providing the capital. And, you know, I remember our first event we had at Stanford, um, you know, we had a, it was, it was like some kind of a cocktail hour or something. And, um, you know, I'd say we had probably 10 investors for every borrower that showed up. And, you know, and, and the issue is if you're at Stanford Graduate School of Business, you've got, you know, eight gazillion things to do and tons of networking opportunity and so forth. And so coming to see the person lending you money wasn't necessarily going to be top of mind for what you wanted to do. And, and so, you know, kind of a combination of those factors, we ended up taking some elements of the model, which was being able to take in particular your degree, um, but also, you know, where you went to school as a fundamental input in terms of creditworthiness. And then opening up, you know, broader institutional capital markets. And we, we basically created a, a product, which was student loan refi. And, you know, it didn't exist before uh, we started SoFi. And our premise was, you know, you refi your house, you refi everything else. Why can't you refi your student loan? And in fact, you know, the idea that everyone goes into a student loan with the same credit, when you exit, you have very different credit. If I have a job, if I don't have a job, right? If I'm making a lot of money, I'm not making a lot of money. And, and you know, so the premise was you should be able to deliver some benefit to borrowers in that construct. And, and you know, obviously we, we did and significantly lowered debt burdens for, you know, tens of thousands and not now over hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and, you know, had a, had a pretty significant impact. And, and there were social elements. And in particular, you know, we did a lot around uh, unemployment insurance. So if you lost your job, we would put your loan in auto forbearance. And then we would tap our investor network, which still consisted of a lot of alumni uh, to help you, you know, from a networking standpoint, find new employment um, or, or, you know, entrepreneur uh, support, help you start a company. You know, there are a bunch of things that we did that, um, you know, tied in the original social thesis. But the idea that sort of, micro pool Stanford alum investing in Stanford students conceptually is a great idea. Practically, it just wouldn't scale out to a commercially viable platform. Yeah. And and so full disclosure, I refied my MBA loan with SoFi, uh, but it's not the only product today, right? Today is a full-fledged financial institution. Was that kind of your vision? How do you feel about the evolution of the company? And I know you're not involved today. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a logical evolution, and and you know there were a lot of fast followers behind us when we came into market, um, but you know SoFi is still a dominant student loan refi player now. You know, very very significant player in the personal loans and and uh, banking and investment space, and you know effectively the strategy was to use that personal loan 
relationship and or that that student loan uh, relationship and affinity is a beachhead to then cross sell into other product and you can get a lot of really good contextual information about people through a student loan that allows you to do very rich outreach and rich cross sell into that relationship and make it super sticky and that's that's really you know the differentiating factor between SoFi and a monoline lending business. Yeah, makes sense. And so let's talk a little bit about your your next adventure, uh, which is not so recent anymore. It's been four or five years since uh, you launched Figure. But uh, I'm sure you learned a ton of lessons, um, you know, challenges and successes at, at SoFi. Maybe tell us about some of the key lessons that you brought with you uh, to Figure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest things was when we started SoFi, we, we really had no idea what it was going to become or how how big the opportunity was and you know we were obviously super fortunate and, and lucky that there was a significant opportunity there that we could build into but it it didn't give us the opportunity to lay a foundation for culture and organization structure that you know would would support that kind of growth and that kind of market opportunity and you know as a, as a consequence of that we didn't have a super instilled culture, which was a, a significant headwind in terms of growing the organization because we had, in particular, a lot of conflict within the organization and a lot of situations where, you know, people weren't all oriented to the, to the same objective or same goal and infighting and so forth. And you know, ultimately, that was all my, my responsibility um, and something that I took very seriously as I was thinking about figure. And, and one of the things that we did with figure is the founding team spent a couple of months before we even went to raise capital for it, just establishing what the rules of the road were going to be. So what is the culture that we were going to try to build? Um, what were our expectations of each other and expectations of everyone that we brought on board? What would we tolerate? What would we not tolerate? And just you know, established a very clear understanding of a rubric that we could that that was genuine, right? That we believed in and could execute to. Uh, and you know, in particular, one of the one of the biggest uh, things that we try to emphasize is is a zero tolerance for you know people call it the no asshole rule, but it, it's effectively adhering into that. And the thing is, I've seen a lot of people claim they have that, and and in practice they don't because it can be very hard to institute, especially when you have a significant performer, but they're a jerk and you know they're orthogonal to the rest of the organization. Um, my experience at this point is that there is no level of individual performance that can compensate for not being congruent into the organization. And, you know, that, that if you don't fit, it, it's not a good thing to do. You need to address it immediately and, and you know, move on and, and do it in a respectful and, and, and uh, appropriate way, but still address it immediately. So, you know, I think we've just been much more focused on organizational cohesion and in particular, making sure that everyone's rowing in the same direction. And that's, that's been huge beneficial especially you know, given the size and scope of the problems we're trying to solve at figure which are significantly bigger um, and more complicated than the things that we tried to do at SoFi. yeah I, and I've, I've heard you say that you were looking for a 100 billion dollar opportunity before you launched figure um, maybe tell us about this this huge opportunity yeah so it, it, and it wasn't it didn't start off with me wanting to look for that. It was actually Yuri Milner um, from DST who came to visit uh, when I was thinking about starting figure. And, and he said, look, don't do anything unless you think it could be a hundred billion dollar idea. And, you know, I, I adhere to that. I think that's actually, you know, especially for repeat entrepreneurs who have already kind of hit the billion threshold, but that's actually a pretty good metric. 
um, albeit a very lofty one, right? Because you know, when he told me that, I was like, yeah, I'm like, I've never built a hundred billion dollar company or anything close. So what, you know, why why should I be having such high ambition? But the thing that that got me excited about Figure is really rooted in the fundamental premise of blockchain and. I think blockchain, you know, there's a lot of obfuscation and confusion as to what it actually is. And, you know, it is, it's, it's not what most people see it as today. So, you know, I look at inflationary networks and token trading and all that. None of that's relevant or none of that matters over the medium and long term. What, what blockchain fundamentally is, is a way to take intermediated institutions and disintermediate them. So what I mean by that is it, it does two things super powerful, which is it allows you to displace trust with truth. So I can use a native digital asset that only exists on the blockchain, doesn't exist anywhere else, where I know for certain the composition, the provenance, the ownership of that asset. And I can transact bilaterally with you without taking your counterparty risk. And you know, so effectively, you have the asset in your wallet, I have stablecoin in my wallet, we face off and stablecoin goes to you and the asset goes to me and we've just traded real time, no counterparty risk, no settlement risk. And so when you intersect those two things, you can create marketplaces where you're agnostic to your counterparty. And what's what's powerful about this is if you think about all financial services, it's just intermediated marketplaces. So, you know, obvious examples are how do we trade stock? You know, DTCC sits and holds the physical security. And then you have introducing and clearing brokers at re- rely on DTC's ledger to effectively move that security across. Um, that's how NASDAQ and NICE work. That's how European exchanges work with Euroclear. Well, blockchain, you can basically transact bilaterally between two counterparties in decentralized exchange. So you don't need a centralized agent like DTC. You don't need introducing clearing brokers. You don't even need the exchange. And, and so you're talking about massive transformation. Uh, and even bigger examples, payments, right? In the payment construct, you've got interchange so visa and mastercard own that interchange network that transaction tax and then you've got your issuing bank issuing processor merchant bank and merchant acquirer and you know effectively a five-party ecosystem that eats between 100 and 300 basis points on every transaction well blockchain i can simply use stablecoin to transact bilaterally with you without incurring any any uh, friction or any transaction costs so so these are the things that you know when we look at this we're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars, in fact, trillions of dollars of market capitalization that's going to be reallocated away from this incumbent ecosystem into a blockchain ecosystem. And some of it's going to go directly to the benefit of the blockchain, the underlying utility token on the chain. And some of it will go to companies that build on that technology or on that network. So in in the SoFi case, you started with refining student loans and then you expanded to other products. In, In the case of figure... It, it sounds like you could have started with several products, uh, but your your main product right now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, has been HELOCs and has been also mortgages, actually many of them backed by, by crypto. Why, why start there? Yeah, so so we actually started, so, so the, the initial use case we had for blockchain was around securitization. And we went to a bunch of banks and said, hey, look, we think you can use blockchain to originate loans, aggregate them in a warehouse and securitize them and save 90 basis points on a securitization structure. And, you know, all the banks said, hey, we love this This is a great idea. We'd like to be the 10th bank to do it. And so, you know, we realized we needed to create operating businesses to be first mover. And so we created figure lending, but we also created figure payment and figure marketplace as well. And figure marketplace has two companies on it figure equity solutions and digital fund services 
Uh, Figure Equity Solutions is a cap table management platform, but it feeds into a blockchain marketplace. So your cap table is actually on the chain and your primary and secondary markets happen uh, on the blockchain. And that's got over 500 companies on it today, and it's adding about 20 a week. So it's growing relatively rapidly. Um, Digital Fund Services is about to launch Apollo and Newberger Berman and several other very large high-profile fund complexes on there that are leveraging blockchain for transfer agent and primary and secondary trading, um, as well as universal passporting. And then Pay, uh, Ready Life is going to go live in September. Ready Pay is their first product. Um, and that's our first bank in a box customer that we're doing through that solution. So effectively, we're, we have our own issuing process where we can deliver a full bank in a box solution, including an embedded Visa card. Uh, but it also is on the blockchain rails. And so it'll handle stablecoin payment. Figure lending is the biggest business that we have. Uh, and, you know, we started with HELOC. We do an enormous amount of HELOC volume today. Um, we do first lien mortgage volume as well, but that first lien mortgage volume is really geared towards a solution we call DART, which is digital asset registry technologies. So we've created a registrar on the blockchain that effectively displaces in the mortgage space, traditional registry functions like MERS, but in the broader digital space, it provides perfection of ownership for NFTs or any other digital asset. And so there's there's actually a ton of stuff going on on the figure side. And it's just, you know, the DTC stuff is more lending, HELOC and first lien mortgage, but you know, there's a lot of B2B that goes on as well in the bank in a box solution, equity solutions and digital fund services. Part of your strategy is working uh, with community banks, right, and giving them technology because you know it's it's hard for a community bank to to kind of revamp their tech, and that's been part of your strategy to help them maybe have better technology than some of the largest banks out there. Uh, maybe talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it it just fundamentally goes to the the nature of of one of the benefits of blockchain. I think blockchain is a tremendous leveling force. And it levels the playing field between large banks and small banks. It leverages the playing field between, you know, enfranchised consumers and disenfranchised consumers. It levels the playing field between large businesses and small businesses. So there's a tremendous leveling aspect of blockchain that I think has enormous social utility. And, you know, it's funny because some of the large banks have spent, you know, two, three, four, five X what figures spent in terms of building blockchain tech out and they don't have anything in production. And, you know, we've done, I think, you know, over $12 billion of blockchain transactions at this point uh, on provenance blockchain, which is the blockchain that we built, but it's public and decentralized. Um, and, you know, and we're continuing to drive super new innovative use cases and if you're a community bank, you're not going to have the resources to build into that, especially given that your larger peer set spend, you know, billions of dollars and, and you know, don't really have anything other than a blockchain think tank because they kind of feel like they need one. And our goal is to crowd in adoption. So what we do is we build really good tech and then we open it up and let people leverage it. And, you yeah, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we want ubiquity of blockchain versus trying to use blockchain as a comparative advantage or a technical moat uh, to compete with other people. Every time I look at the annual budgets of some of the big banks, especially the big four, uh, I just these are insane numbers. And, and I think, what would some amazing entrepreneurs like you do with just a, a portion of it? And and he, they, he, I think this is the answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it, it's. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but but you know, if you look at something like Marcus, for example, and, and what they've spent into that thus far. 
it's an enormous amount of money and it's a monoline consumer lender. And, and so, you know, you need to think a lot bigger in terms of what the opportunity set is. And, and that's, you know, that's where I think certain fintechs have executed extremely well and extremely efficiently. And, and, you know, again, the idea that there's massive economies of scale of good technology, massive economies of scale of blockchain. Uh, and so we're just trying to crowd in that scale. Mike, anyone listening to this will probably already be thinking, damn, you're, you have a lot of products, right? And you have a lot of initiatives and cool things happening. Uh, talk about your process of product innovation. How does this actually get done and ideated and then, and then shipped? Yeah, so, so what, what we do is we, we try to build a lot of things rapidly to like 80% completion and put them in front of people and see how people react to them. And, and we try to build with empathetic design, right? So use case construct, I'm coming in, I'm trying to do this. So how do I make it as easy and painless and fast and efficient as possible? And, you know, and, and we, do, we do it with no dogma. So if we have a great, we, what we think is a great idea, we put it out there and people don't leverage it, then we kill it. And, and so, but like, we would never do focus groups. We would never do market research. Like, you know, I, I remember when I was at Stanford, I was taking a, a class, entrepreneurial studies, and one of the foundations was you had to do all this market research to go out and figure out what people would want or why there was opportunity for something, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I always went back and, and, you know, it involved focus groups. And I went back to what Henry Ford said, which is if I asked people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses, right? Like if you're truly disrupting and building innovative products, people don't know how to ask for them because they don't know what they are. And so what you've got to do is put it in front of people and then see, do they embrace it or do they run from it? And, and you will facilitate embracing if you build it empathetically. Go, going back to specifically talk about the blockchain and, and crypto innovations, something that makes everyone a little bit nervous is, of course, uh, the prospect of a regulation that is going to maybe not kill this, but, but uh, slow the pace and maybe drive some people away. Um, what, why do you think regulators and also the, the very traditional uh, arm of finance, uh, they're still very reluctant to embrace this? So I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think you have huge vested interests that have no benefit in blockchain being adopted. So any, any centralized entity. So if I was DTC, like DTC talks about all these cool blockchain experiments they're doing. They really, really don't want blockchain because if the blockchain exists, they don't need to exist. Um, it's the same with the payment networks like Visa, MasterCard. There's, there's, oh, we're doing all these blockchain experiments. But the reality is, I don't know what role they play if blockchain was a pervasive payment network. And, and so you have significant incumbents that you know, have no real incentive to change this. And those incumbents are, are, you know, very effective from a lobbying standpoint. And they're pushing, you know, all the, the, the trials and tribulations and risks of, of blockchain. And, you know, certainly some of the blowups that, that we've had, especially some of the, you know, the algorithmic stablecoin blowups and the hedge fund blowups. And, and, and by the way, there's, there's more to come because, because of the whole nuance of bankruptcy and, and, you know, the perception that people had collateralized loans when in fact the, the collateral wasn't, wasn't perfected those are everyone gets to say look i told you so see and and you know when we had the blockchain blow up and and three arrows collapse and celsius collapse etc all, all these people went to twitter and said you know blockchain has no use cases 
And, you know, that, that was unfortunate because we think obviously there's some pretty significant and meaningful use cases that we've already de-risked and demonstrated real financial viability behind. And at the end of the day, you know, what the regulators ultimately want to see is, is how does it impact the consumer? And again, I think it's a huge leveling force and it drives great value to the consumer. I think, you know, if you look at a solution like Dart, you know, that could take between $500,000 of, of, of the cost of a mortgage out of the equation. And that ultimately will manifest through to the consumer in terms of better rates or lower closing costs or lower points. And, you know, there, there's no reason why we shouldn't be facilitating that kind of adoption, creating a, uh, a more robust payment network eliminates the need for distribution of prepaid debit cards for relief to unbanked consumers, right? There's, you know, much better ways to get capital out to people that don't have the 20% fraud rates that shipping debit cards has. And, and so, you know, I think part of this is just the narrative that the industry hasn't done a great job because it's really been perceived as crypto, which, you know, crypto is a very, the uh, cryptocurrency is an integral part of blockchain because it provides a decentralization and governance construct for it. And so, you know, you, you can't downplay it, but that's not what it's about. What it's about is disintermediation of tradi- traditional intermediate marketplaces to the benefit of everyone that participates. When you look at regulators around the world, is there one or two that catch your eye that you think are, are doing a good job? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Singapore is pretty progressive. I think, you know, interestingly enough, a lot of the European regulators are, are seemingly more progressive. Um, you know, U.S. regulators, I think, are getting there, but they just have a really difficult time um, getting their arms around public chains. And that's, you know, there, there's a bunch of people that, that, that promote the idea of private chains, Private blockchain is, is you know, I don't understand what the value of a private blockchain is because you just run a database and it's infinitely faster and cheaper and more effective. So if you don't have the decentralization and you have someone who de facto controls the network, then you don't really need the blockchain. And you know, th- this is something that, that we debate all the time. You know, we're, we were one of the big uh, technical uh, supporters of USDF, which is a bank-owned stablecoin. Um, that New York Community Bank and several other banks founded. And, you know, the, the, there's a discussion about, well, should we go to a private permission chain uh, as a way to, you know, slowly wade into the regulatory construct here? And in that case, we, could, we, we support it, you know, with the understanding that it, it's really an interim step because at the end of the day, if you don't have a decentralized network, you really just, you know, should have a database. What's your view on CBDCs and, and that's central bank digital currencies? Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's it's one of those things where they're the Fed is looking at this saying, well, we need to do this on a permission network. And I just don't know why they just don't create a database that everyone belongs to. They just move ledger entries back and forth to each other, right? And the Fed controls the database. Like, why do you need a blockchain and why do you need validation you know, whether it's proof of stake or proof of work, and that would clearly be a proof of stake chain, you know, why do you need a bunch of validators on that chain, you know, given that construct? This, the more existential issue is CBDC would mark the end of banking as we know it. Um, it's the biggest existential threat to banks that exist. And if there was a CBDC, I think you would see, especially the marginalized, you know, the smaller banking uh, sector just completely disappear within a decade. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. And I would suspect other countries than the U.S. 
would uh, would move faster on this. Uh, you know, thinking of countries like China, Mike. So switching gears a little bit, when you think of your your role as a leader, uh, what um, you know, what do you think are your biggest strengths and in your biggest weaknesses? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say the the biggest strength is I've I've had success really pioneering difficult solute difficult technical solutions. So taking things to market that that people say that's never going to work, it's too hard, it's too difficult, um, and being able to to manifest that into a way where it not only works but it's actually sustainable, so it's profitable. And that's you know whether I can keep doing that or not, who knows? I mean, we've 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 done it with uh, certainly with our lending business figure, um, and you know I believe we're going to be doing it with the other businesses as well. the The biggest limitation is I just don't like to manage people, so <laughs> I'm not a manager. Um, you know what I like to do is just go very deep on the product and drive drive product and technology in a way to do things that people didn't think were able to be done. Um, but you know, in terms of managing people and like being a good resource to talk to about your career and you know, mentorship, like, I'm not very good at that at all. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. I think people that follow you and know you would say also that you are a great fundraiser. Uh, why do you think you've been successful raising both equity and debt? I guess. Yeah, because I, I think at the end of the day, people want to allocate capital to what they think are are big, significant, transformational ideas. And you know that's that's what we want to lean in and do. So we're not we're not looking to hit singles. We want to hit home runs, and you know that's that's what capital wants to see. They want to see that you've got a huge opportunity, and they trust the team to execute in the opportunity. So Mike, before I let you go, you you've been an entrepreneur for a very long time, and I'm proud to say that we have uh, several founders tuning in. And maybe some aspiring founders as well. Uh, what what would you share with them? You know, what reflections from uh, you know from a seasoned founder? Stay grounded. It's the most important thing to do. And and when I say stay grounded, I mean I mean both on the highs and the lows, right? It's like it's it's never as good as you think it is. It's never as bad as you fear it is. So just stay grounded. Yeah, my uh, co-founder Andrew always says uh, when you think you're screwed, you're only 40% screw. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, and I have no doubt the audience is going to enjoy this quite a lot. Awesome. Well, listen, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode with the legend Mike Cagney, CEO of Figure. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasco.